Welcome back to the Money Under the Mattress podcast. My name is Mitch and my co-host is Jake. Today we have a special guest. We have Joshua Lukemuller. Uh, Josh is a CFA uh, chart holder and Python programmer that focuses on data analytics and develops comprehensive trading models for his personal portfolio. He's also a partner, investor, and realtor at Paramount Real Estate and specializes in single-family residential as well as multifamily property analysis. He graduated with a master's in financial economics from Texas A&M, and he's also the host of Wall Street Junkie podcast. Thanks for coming on today, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate Mitch and Jake. You know, you did a great job. You know, I won't talk too much more about it, but yeah, so I got my you know, undergrad and master's at Texas A&M, um, and then subsequently afterwards got my CFA charter. And as far as my institutional experience, I spent four years working in Texas and New York, you know, as a mortgage-backed securities trader. So right out of school, I was fortunate enough to land a job on a desk and start hedging a, um, a residential loan portfolio. I used uh, interest rate swaps, um, TBAs, and other mortgage derivatives to hedge the interest rate risk of the bank's portfolio. So that was kind of my first introduction into the market. And so with that, the last six months I've transitioned as an entrepreneur and now I'm a full-time real estate investor and like you said podcast host as well so really appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks for coming on. Um, So first question we have is um, how did you start investing? Yeah good question you know I think like any of us there's always that 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 influence that one person that kind of influences you to start at least learning about the markets and I think I was 18 or 19 in school I was studying mathematics at the time and I hated mathematics, at least studying at the, the university level. Right. And so I, I, I looked back at my time in high school and my economics professor kind of stuck in my head. And from that, I kind of just made the leap into studying economics, uh, you know, as like a freshman, sophomore in year, yeah, freshman or sophomore in college. And from there I started investing, you know, 10, 20 bucks here and there, and like most new investors, I kind of, you got ruined initially, right? I, I was seeking that kind of instant gratification. So I think I got into a little bit of day trading, Forex, things of that nature, and kind of quickly learned that that wasn't my uh, risk appetite. But that was my start in the markets. I think like most was uh, one of uh, anything but positive, unfortunately. Yeah, that's very similar to uh, how I started. And then... <laughs> Uh, even you too, Jake, a little bit too, eh? I, I, uh, I was a bit of a risky uh, investor at the start, but then I came out of it. Yeah, I got into the cannabis craze. Uh, <laughs> and so so I got drilled on that one and uh, had my fun with that. Put 100% of my portfolio into cannabis stocks. When was this? Like, what year? Uh, this was back 2018, I believe. Okay. Uh, summer of 2018, when I kind of started dabbling. Like I had it, I was still in high school, so I had it under my father's uh, father's name and so then I was dabbling a little bit in, in his account and then gone like that <laughs> and to, oh, oh, to the, so now I've built my portfolio back up from that but yeah um so what is your current strategy and how has it evolved over time would you say Josh yeah, absolutely you know like I said from the beginning it was more you know kind of this risky kind of chase the trend so to speak and not really thinking for myself but over time you know I think when I was probably 22, 23, when I just about finished up my master's, I kind of had a better understanding of markets in general. 
and from an economics perspective. I, I really didn't have as much confidence in my individual stock picking ability. And so from there, it was a lot more focused on ETFs. And even with that, I think that the biggest strategy I had was get to that six figure portfolio mark as quickly as possible using ETFs. So with that, it was more of a consistency investing every two weeks, you know, whether it was at the top of the market, bottom of the market, I continued to funnel money into, you know, your broad market ETFs. And so by the time I hit, because I was 24, I had hit six figures on the account. And then, you know, at 25, it, because of COVID, thankfully, it was, uh, had reached 250K. And that was, again, most of my portfolio is, is ETF. So about 60% of the portfolio is ETFs and another 40% is more targeted. And with that targeted exposure, I kind of look at annual economic forecasts and within that 40%, I'll shift sectors and or also take concentrated stock positions, if that makes sense. So about 60% mm. is just globally broad-based ETFs and another 40% is targeted exposure more of that tactical allocation as I see shifts in the economy, shifts in the market. So you, so you graduated with a master's in economics. So yep. are you a big follower of Ray Dalio by any chance? I love Ray Dalio. I have his book Principles. I don't know if you've read that. Yes, I, I have actually read that. Yeah, huge, huge fan of Ray Dalio. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the largest money managers, one of the biggest hedge funds was at like top three or four. So he's got a wealth of knowledge there. Yeah, you really live by the saying, time in the market is better than timing the market. Uh, that's what it sounds like when you're saying that you buy up and down uh, and just keep on dumping money in uh, every couple of weeks into ETFs. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I think too many people get so fixated on the, the short-term volatility, which I think, as you guys know, is, is a lot of it's driven by emotional biases. So for me, yeah. I think, the less you touch your portfolio really over the long run and the data kind of speaks for itself, the better off you're going to be. Um, at least from this perspective, you know, a long-term strategy, the less I touch it, the better. Going back to your concentrated portfolio, um, what type of like uh, analysis are you doing on those uh, type of individual securities? Yeah. So a lot of that is, First, I'll start, it's, it's more of a top-down economic approach. So I'll, I'll look at the macroeconomic forecasts and from there, I'll look at the sectors. So I guess to put it in the context for 2021, I think what you've been seeing a lot of is, is the shift from growth to value. So in that, you know, I'll, I'll take that for face value. And then from there, I'll look at the sectors that I think are gonna benefit from this shift. So off the top of my head, I, I looked at energy, financials, and a couple of other sectors. And then I would look at financials and see which companies are positioned appropriately for the next year. And with that, I typically, honestly, I'm more of a, a quality investor. So I really like your a lot of your blue chips. Honestly, I think there's a lot to be said for the blue chips. So that's typically the, uh, the space I like to navigate in. Interesting. Yeah, because I mean, value has been driven down for over a decade now. And so as me and Jake are pretty, pretty concentrated value investors, we're pretty getting excited 
Uh, so you guys are concentrating. Okay. So what kind yeah. of value do you guys see right now for 2021? Not a whole lot. <laughs> Not a whole lot. What are um, you guys invested in or looking at? Uh, a lot of our portfolio is based around, well, we have like seven holdings, Jake. Me and Jake have a very similar holdings. Some of them differ. Um, okay. But like a lot of it is, uh, I'm not sure if you know the investor, Monish Cabrai. No, I don't. Mm-mm. Okay. He's a famous value investor. Um, he runs just around, I believe, half a billion dollars and assets under management, uh, big Warren Buffett guys that me and Jake are. And so same nice. with Monish. And so we'll kind of clone a few of his plays. That's how we kind of get our ideas. And so Love it. Um, one of them is uh, Seratage Growth Properties, uh, which is the old real estate on Sears. Okay. That's been driven down, um, went from 40 to $5 during COVID. And so right. we were picking it up around nine. Uh, so a lot of our portfolios in that. Um, we have a Canadian financial institution Yep. Um, called EQ Banks and Online. Okay. Um, we also have uh, a pretty big holding in Boston Omaha Corporation, um, which is actually Warren Buffett's grand nephew, which is kind of interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. and he's kind of taken the whole uh, Berkshire Hathaway approach to it and kind of started his own uh, with his co CEO, uh, Adam Rosa, or Adam Patterson. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I wouldn't say that we're strictly value investors. We right. like right now I have, I have a significant portion of my money in Bubba right now as well. And oh, okay. What's the play there? What are you guys, what are you seeing in that? I think it's a bet on China for me, for me personally, okay. it's a bet on China. I and, like that. Um, yep. I, I, I feel like in my opinion, I feel like you're picking up an Amazon type of, of, of company at a yep. cheaper valuation. Um, what else? Um, a couple of the other investors that we look up to, they also own it. And uh, recently, um, Charlie Munger just bought it actually this last quarter. So I like that you guys kind of look at where the rich money goes. I, yeah. I think not, a, not enough people give, you know, the greats enough respect. Mm-hmm. I think there's too much overconfidence in the market right now. And a lot of people kind of shift away from these guys who've been doing it for decades and have continued to perform at that level so I, I like that you guys focus on that uh that's that's pretty good to hear thank you um yeah like we'll take investment ideas from it i mean like like buffett got into verizon me and jake both aren't in verizon it's got to be in our circle of competence so like our circle of understanding um yep. as well as like this is our second year in the investment second maybe third year i guess into like actually like doing full-on analysis on companies um, and so we're very new to it. There's a lot of businesses that we don't understand. And, you know, these great investors are eons um, ahead of us yep. in uh, understanding these businesses. So then if we're able to pick up every now and then on something that might be at a great discount uh, to some intrinsic value, then we'll uh, add it to the portfolio. Yeah. You know, for me, I think what I'm seeing the most, I'm so so bullish on financials. I know you guys had mentioned that. I think from a value perspective, just at least in the U.S. markets, given where rates are, and from you know from a value perspective in 2020, value stocks performed pretty crappy. And so from that perspective and where rates are, I, I just see banks as a good buy. You get that. Use. Pretty... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. 
do you see like the bigger banks like Bank of America or, or more of the regional banks as like a value play? Yeah, I, I honestly think the bigger banks are still a value play. Mm-hmm. And also I and I also like them from the also more of a growth perspective as well, given where financial technology is going. I, I think the big banks are going to um, have their footprint and blockchain too. I, I got to imagine. So from that perspective as well, I'm, I'm going to stay pretty bullish on banks. Are you pretty bullish on blockchain? Uh, I'm not, if you're asking if I'm invested in cryptos, I'll say very little. Um, but I think you get the best of both worlds with banks. I think banks have a great business model overall. I still think they're undervalued intrinsically given where rates are and that shift mm-hmm. to growth that we saw in the last decade. Um, and look, if I can scoop up a little bit of exposure and correlation to uh, cryptos in the blockchain world, I think, you know, might as well. That's kind of how I view it. Yeah. It, yeah, it's very similar to like a tweet that John Mahalkovich, I believe that's his last name, he's the Manual of Ideas uh, author. Uh, he just yeah. said something on Twitter the other day saying that he's not an investor in Bitcoin, um, but he is bullish on Bitcoin. And yep. he says like he's investing in businesses that will eventually turn into Bitcoin cash flows if Bitcoin is to be our median currency worldwide. And so it's kind of an interesting thesis because everyone's, I mean, a lot of my friends are like, oh, you're not in Bitcoin? <laughs> well, no, I got, uh, I'm looking for businesses with, with durable competitive advantages that have cash flows, right? Like I'm looking for cash flow. Yep. And so Bitcoin's just not a cash flow machine or anything like that. And so if I can in, invest in a business that will possibly give me Bitcoin cash flows later on, um, it, time will tell, I guess, but it's not something that I'm really betting on. Uh, right I now. think that's the right approach too. I think that's a good risk adjusted approach to use instead of just diving on into cryptocurrencies, you know, all nilly nilly. I think that's, uh, that's the right way to look at it. Hmm. So what was your experience like on wall street? Oh man. Okay. So most of my time, you know, I spent a summer out in New York, although most of my time was in Texas. Um, but you know, my job was, mortgage-backed securities trader. So I traded with all the uh, the big banks. So from that perspective, absolutely crazy information flow. And I think just from, you have to start, you know, you start working at what, 6 a.m. And then you work till about 6 p.m. So it's 12 hours a day, you know, five days a week. And then you're probably working on the weekends as well. Just crazy access to information. I think that there's so much to learn just from the financial investment perspective, but also just the way the street talks to one another, the communication flow, um, and just honestly, the kind of the market know-how that you get from Wall Street, just the ins and outs of the market that you wouldn't otherwise kind of pick up on unless you're on a desk like that, I think is super important. But for me, I thought, spending four years on there, I just didn't see the longevity to that lifestyle working 70, 80 hours a week. That was kind of my call to action to kind of uh, step away from the world and uh, dive into the entrepreneurial endeavors that I'm doing now. So what years would have that been that you worked on Wall Street? So that would have been from 2017. Yeah, well, late 2016, to uh, late 2020. 
So you would have been, you would have went through the coronavirus crash and been yep. on Wall Street then. Wow. Yeah. So I was, I was trading the MBS during, you know, so last March I was that main guy on the desk and that was absolutely insane. And given those three or four years, just to see where rates were going, that was absolutely crazy. There was so much volatility there. Um, and my desk, especially our models were breaking down. So I don't know if you, you know, you probably got, you guys don't know this, but most of the bank's models were, were tested from COVID. Um, volatility was just absolutely to a level that we'd never seen before. So models were very hard to predict, predict risk. Um, and for our bank specifically, forecasting the interest rate risk was such a nightmare that you kind of just had to rely on your market knowledge from the last three to four years and basically hedge blind. You didn't have any models to rely on for most of March and April. Yeah, it's super interesting. It must've been an extremely um, fun, but treacherous job at the exact same time because you are working. Like that's what I've heard is that insane hours on Wall Street is extremely stressful. Right. Um, but it can be extremely fun at the same time if you're interested in, in Wall Street and financials. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, the good way to look at it is you get to learn twice as much as somebody working just a normal nine to five, 40 hour a week job. So I think you drink from the fire hose and you get good relationships coming out of it as well. And I think you get a, um, a certain level of respect and market knowledge that you just wouldn't otherwise have. And I think a lot of that also has to do with the fact that I had my own Bloomberg terminal for about four years. So that was pretty awesome. I don't know. Have you guys dabbled on? the uh terminal before no i've never i've never touched the bloomberg terminal no we have one at a university uh probably about an hour and a half away but that's the closest bloomberg to us yeah you know i think the the terminal is is much the way i would look at a the stock market for a new investor there's just so much information out there it's mind-boggling on that platform but if you know if you are are very uh focused and you have a narrowly defined um you know, model, I think the access to information and the power of Bloomberg is astronomical. It, it'd definitely be a super interesting thing to work on, I bet. And it's only like, I think 25 grand a year. Only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's about what it costs for a license. Jeez. Um, this is a good question that we like to ask um, people uh, within the industry uh, or just people that are investing on the side still. Um, where do you see the current markets? And then if so, like what inning would be, we would be in? Yeah, that's a good question. Let me, give me one second. I have it right here. Where do I see it? I still think we're in this expansionary period. I still think it's early recovery or sorry, early expansionary. Um, inflation was very, very low in 2020. And with Chairman Powell still being kind of dovish, and I was reading expectations for inflation might get above two, although the steady state that they really want is two and a half percent. So I don't think inflation is really going to get to where we want it to be until end of 2022 is what they're saying. And also with that, I was just reading GDP forecasts. Uh, U.S. is supposed to be now, it's supposed to be by the end of the year, over 6% GDP growth, which is absolutely insane. Absolutely crazy. And then you also have elevated savings rates. A lot of that having to do with the stimulus. So I think from that 
standpoint, I still think there's a, a lot of value and a lot of, a lot of good plays for 2021. You just have to look a little bit harder and it's not going to just be in the easy tech that we saw. And, uh, you know, l- literally like the last few years, it was just tech. All you had to do is get in the NASDAQ, buy the NASDAQ, and you were going to be fine. I don't think you're going to beat the market if you um, go for tech, go for tech exclusively. Are you watching the 10 year at all? Yeah, I am. So what, what did, uh, what did I see today? It was down what six basis points to 1.66%. So a lot of people are, well, that's why the, the tech correction in 2021, you know, with yields rising pretty quick. Although with that, I think it's important to note just the nominal GDP growth ha- has grown by 10%. So this yield, you know, increase over that amount of time, isn't that crazy to get behind so i don't think like there's this crazy shift to bonds or i don't think we should necessarily be worried about it as much as people think i think that was more just headline news driven Uh, people were flocking and panicking but i I think you have to look at the gdp growth that we've been experiencing and relate that back to the 10-year moves if that makes sense yeah but i mean look you know we're low rates inflation's clearly going to pick back up you know it's just only a matter of time and then in the u.s specifically you have high stimulus so the economy is in this kind of weird place where it can overheat really quickly um so i think for me it's always just maintaining that diversification um and so for a lot of a lot of investors that's going to be uh diversify away from tech so don't be 100 percent in technology <laughs> if that makes sense are you a believer in gold or any other type of hedge against inflation? Oh. So I believe in hedging. Do I think gold is a great hedge? No. What was I reading? I think in the last, what was it? 30, 40 years, um, gold was up like 170% inflation was up over 200%. <laughs> so like gold clearly isn't the hedge. Uh, no. I think you guys would probably agree. So a lot of people our age are looking uh, to Bitcoin for the hedge. Um, I don't know about that. I think you can get hedges in commodities. I like real estate for that hedge. And I also, honestly, I think financials are a decent hedge when it comes to um, rising inflation and uh, increasing rates. Yep. What about you guys? What's your take on gold? I think it's a... uh... You want to take this one, Mitch? You want me to take it? I'll let you take it. I just, there's no cash that gets produced from gold. So I can't yeah. really value it like, whatsoever. And all you can do is hold on to gold. And, you know, if you actually hold on to physical gold, you're going to have to find a place to store it. And if you have to store it like a bank or somewhere, you're probably going to have to pay to store it. Yeah. So there's no real reason to hold it, I don't think, in my opinion. But. No, I, don't, I, don't, I don't fully disagree either. It's kind of that weird one that weird legacy hedge that I think is slowly going to get phased out. Mm, I think so too. Especially with now crypto. Uh, I think you saw, you might've saw these, these gold uh, junkies that were so interested in gold all the time, might get into crypto spaces and kind of sell their gold positions. Uh, oh yeah. I don't my take on it. I just find it hard for like Bitcoin or some other type of cryptocurrency to become like our actual like currency because it's so volatile. Yeah, that's always the thing I 
that's the number one question I ask is how, like from a currency perspective, I don't know if I would feel comfortable with the volatility in a currency like that. And, and I understand our currencies, you know, Canadian dollar and US dollar, there's volatility there. But to the level to which cryptos trade at, I just, I can't get behind using that as a, as just an everyday currency. I mean, look, if you used Bitcoin, as, you know, to purchase a, a box of pizza, eight or nine years ago, that pizza would have cost you freaking a million dollars or whatever it was. <laughs> so I'm just like, to me, I'm just, I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I get the libertarian perspective behind Bitcoin. I, I totally understand um, this whole argument against fiat currency. I just, in yeah. practice, I don't know if uh, Bitcoin is a solution. Mm. Yeah. Um, so what are your favorite sectors right now besides banking? Yeah, besides banking, I like energy and I also like healthcare and I also like e-commerce. So for me, when you asked about individual plays, I think one of the biggest indiv individual plays that I took in 2020 and have continued to add is uh, in a position in Etsy. Etsy oh. has been, I have about 15% of my portfolio in Etsy, you know, just straight up 15%, which is a lot for an individual stock. Um, and uh, for a couple of reasons, I think Etsy was a really niche platform pre 2020, you know, everyone thought of it. No one thought of Etsy as it is today. And still, when I tell people what Etsy has become, they still don't believe me, but it's the fourth largest e-commerce site. And, you know, the 2020 return was 300%. And, you know, currently it's up 18%. So with that, I think going back to the management with Etsy, they were able to kind of position themselves to take advantage of the mass when COVID hit. That was the first kind of really big play. So they got triple, triple digit revenue growth from there. But they were able to expand their platform with that influx and in cash and revenue and expand their entire platform. So now it's the fourth largest e-commerce site um, you know, to date. So I, you know, I really like that. It's more of a growth play. So I know, you know, from a valuation standpoint, it's pretty, pretty expensive, but I like their cash position as well. So they have $1.7 billion worth of cash and short-term investments. And I think that'll position them nicely for future growth in 2021 and 2022. You see that as a, um, like a 10 year long play, like one that you're going to, you know. Hold. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think, you know, for individual stocks, I typically like to take at least a five-year, you know, viewer horizon, if not longer. So Etsy's at least a five-year, and if I could hold it for 10, that'd be awesome, because I have a lot of faith in it. So even though you are an ETF investor mainly, um, yep. would, would Etsy be your one company that you would be willing to hold for the 10 to 15-year uh, time horizon and not be your only holding other than your ETFs? Um, oh, my entire portfolio? Oh, man. Yeah, um, this is just theoretically. like Theoretically. Yeah. Oh, so that's a growth play. Um, perhaps, although what, what I'll bring it back to, and for most investors, I think you can't, honestly, you cannot go wrong with Apple or Microsoft. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why most ETFs, broad-based ETFs, or even your your large cap um, ETFs have eight, nine, 10% weights in Apple and Microsoft. 
I think you need those anchors in your portfolio um, for long-term wealth building and growth. Mm-hmm. I would go there. But like for kind of more of a, oh, I love Facebook. Yeah, I love Facebook. And I actually have an individual holding in Facebook as well. What about you guys? Yeah, I do personally. Do you, Mitch? Uh, no, I don't have any Facebook. I, I just had like a small percentage of my portfolio, but I sold out because it's just so small. Um, so what's your take on it then, Jake, with um, with Facebook? W- what's attractive to it from you from a valuation standpoint? I think what's attractive is they have, what, 2 billion people on WhatsApp right now? Yeah. And they're not really monetized. And then you also have, Ooh, yeah. you know, Oculus that is, I think, the dominant VR um, company yep. in that industry. And then you also have, I think I seen the other day something about some augmented reality glasses that are coming out. Yeah. They're working on. So like, there's a lot to look forward to there. And, and they're cash. Face- they have yes, so much they- cash. So like with the bets that you're talking about, they need cash and they have it. Mm. And they have a lot of free cash coming in. Like a yeah. lot. So it's a no brainer so- from that perspective. I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah. That's a great pick. It's a, it's a great business. I know with all the FANG stocks right now, uh, it's, a, it's the best uh, price to earnings possible. Uh, I yeah. find, yeah. And I, mean, I think they the might get stocks. into cryptos too. I think Facebook might come up with their own, um, I don't know, Facebook cash. I know, because I know Apple's awesome. considering doing it, or if not, they already have something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those social media companies might get their foot in the door when it comes to that space, blockchain, things of that nature. Do you think since um, Tesla holds some cryptocurrency now, do you think that if there's a huge crash in that market, that it'll affect Tesla at all? I hope so. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's funny because I know a lot of, I feel like a lot of those Tesla investors are the same ones that invest their whole, whole portfolio in cryptos. So I feel like these guys have 50% in Tesla and 50% in Bitcoin. Um, (laughs) I think, I don't think so though, from Tesla's perspective, I I don't think a, a, you know, huge swing in Bitcoin would necessarily affect the prospects in the long term for Tesla. But I think in the short term, when you're seeing headline driven investing and trading, yeah, I think you would see a, um, I would see, I think, I would think you would see price action on Tesla. At least where do you see, where do you see Tesla's intrinsic value currently? If you Mitch and I have ours. Do you have it? I'd love to hear your guys' because I'm not super well-versed. I'm not a big, uh, I'm kind of a, a bear when it comes to Tesla. I think they price growth. I think the investors price growth too far when it comes to Tesla. So I think when you're seeing people price growth past 10 years, which is what I typically see a lot of these new investors do, I get a little bit worrisome when it comes to mm. valuing Tesla. Yeah, we believe... Um, the intrinsic value to be around like 150. Would that be fair, Jake? Yeah, I'd say 150. I'd probably buy it at like 75. Yeah. So like way below. <laughs> so we're kind of bearish on it for sure. And what's your take on that? Why? We think okay. Well, the price earnings multiple of like a billion, whatever it is now, is yeah. a thousand. It's, past it's a like thousand. a thousand. Yep. Yeah, and so I think you know we've seen. Yeah, that with Yahoo, we've seen it with our, uh, RCA uh, back in 2000. Uh, and these big growth companies can't sustain uh, that type of price earnings multiple. Right. Um, yeah. I don't think there's extreme growth, uh, especially since there's going to be other EV cars coming in. 
Yeah. But that's just kind of my personal like my personal opinion on it. Um, I, I I don't really see like the Kathy Woods saying was it three thousand that she she had now. Yeah, it's three thousand. Yeah. That's what I was reading. Absolutely yeah, like, crazy. Everything she does is absolutely crazy. <laughs> you know, and I'm not even gonna lie. Unfortunately, I did buy Arc. I, I don't have a big, um, you know, big concentration, but I did, you know, just because I, I don't know, was it FOMO? I think that might have been a, a miss on my part. <laughs> You know, it is what it is. But uh, oh, yeah. I'm not uh, not a huge fan of Kathy and, and the people yeah. that kind of view her as uh, on this pedestal. Um, mm. I think. I think hot money eventually flows away. It always does. Um, and I think she's hot money. And it's, Especially it's when there's no fundamentals to back it. Yeah. And I mean, her big claim to fame was Tesla. And she's got a couple of other big winners. But really, Tesla is what drove her 2020 portfolio return. So you take Tesla out of the mix. And it's, it's not something that I would really balk at or get me super excited. What's your thoughts on her space ETF? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, well, I didn't see a whole lot of space in there. I did like, a, <laughs> right. I did a, uh, like a portfolio breakdown. And I'm like, wait, I don't know what these companies are, <laughs> you know? Um, that's a good question. Let me pull it up. What, it's, it's what's your take on it? I did. I just, I just said, there's no way I'd put any money in there. That's all I had to say. I didn't have like a real, like strong take on it. I just and said, the, I, yeah. <laughs> And the expense loads too, they're like, you're paying like 75 basis points for an actively managed ETF. And not to mention, I think people forget that uh, there's significant capital gains. So they pass their capital gains on to their investors when you hold those ARC ETFs at a much higher rate um, than a passively managed ETF. Because by very nature, these are actively managed ETFs. I don't even like calling them ETFs. It's more of a mutual fund. Yeah, really. I mean, to be honest with you, that's what it is. So they kind of, you know, fall, you know, they kind of put themselves under this veil of ignorance by calling it an ETF. But I think you and I both would agree it's it's probably anything but. <laughs> I have it up right here. They uh, it's ridiculous. Expense ratio seventy five basis points. You and I already talked about that. That's outrageous. That's a yeah. That's a mutual fund. Um. And then look, they have Trimble, like a 3D printer. Is that right? Do they have a 3D printer ETF in their space? Yeah. I, uh, yeah, nice. it's, their, it's their internally managed 3D printer ETF that they hold in this space <laughs> ETF. Like, I, I don't understand. Yeah. It's what's PRNT. Deer doing? What was that? What's Deer doing in there? Yeah. Deer. I, oh, Deer. Deer's in there? Yeah. Oh my God. I go. have Lockheed Martin. Okay. I can uh, kind of understand that. I get that. Mm. Boeing. Okay. I'm just, but a lot of these names I'm, I'm not seeing like security solutions. I'm looking at the top 10% or top 10 holdings and it just, it wouldn't be what you would think. Well, there's um, <laughs> alphabets in there. Amazon. Maybe um, they, you know what, maybe, maybe uh, Kathy Woods knows more than we do. Maybe that's it. <laughs> and you know what? That's the argument I've heard most people tell me, right? Is she knows better. So I am going to trust her and put all my money blind in this ETF. Um, She's a time traveler. 
That's, that's I, I, you know what? I think that's what it is. Um, but I'll <laughs> stay away from that one. I don't know. What's your take on it? You you guys aren't in it, right? No, no. Yeah. We it's, are it's, so far awesome. away from Kathy that <laughs> that's that, ridiculous. Yes, we can barely pronounce her name anymore. Like it's, it's that. Like it's. No. I'm surprised given your guys' age, you know, most people our age, your age, they would cancel you if they knew you were talking bad about Kathy. Um, but oh, it's yeah. great. It's great to hear, though, because I think there needs to be opposition. And I think you need to warn new investors to not go full force into these products. All our no, friends exactly. are in cryptocurrency, right? So right. and they look at us kind of like stupid if you know, like we're doing all these value plays and they're out here, you know, betting on cryptocurrency. So it's, it's interesting. You guys are taking the long approach, but I think uh, given the head on your shoulders, I think it's going to pay dividends in your portfolio. Just taking that approach. I think mm-hmm. uh, you're going to end up in a really good position. Yeah, you, you guys remind me a lot of myself when I, you know, when I was your age four or five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting into like, we're in the boring stuff. Like the more yep. boring, the more fun it is for us. Sure. And like, you know, my friends that kind of will dabble in stocks, they'll send me things on Bitcoin or maybe they're on <laughs> Kathy's ETFs or it could be like Jim Cramer or something like that. Yeah. And, oh yeah. Jim and, Cramer. I love him. <laughs> and so then they'll come over to my house and I'll be reading a value investing textbook. And so then okay. like this. So it's, there's two sides to it. And so me and me and Jake definitely like the more boring companies. So. We'll right, like the financials and the energy sector and stuff like stuff like you and no, we're not into the big tech. We're into the we big tech and it's at a good valuation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't disagree at all. Because we recommend um, like ETF investing to all of our friends and like their parents and everything. Like, we recommend ETF investing to anyone that doesn't want to like right. put in a bunch of time to figure out individual companies. And if absolutely. you have a lot of money, might as well put in ETFs as well. Where we're yeah. younger, we don't have as much. We may as well try to, you know, maybe achieve a higher return, but it might be a little riskier than if you right. were to just put your money into an S&P 500 fund or something, right? I mean, you guys know, like the, the, the data says most people won't beat the market if you try and actively manage your portfolio. Mm-hmm. So for somebody who doesn't even want to try, why even put yourself mm-hmm. in that situation when you can exactly. just get the market that easy? It's not even hard. There's like, you know, you could go, honestly, you could go, three ETFs and you could be globally diversified in three ETFs and be done and call it a day. Mm-hmm, you exactly. could do it with VTI. You could do it with VX US. And then I think the total bond fund, although I don't really like bonds right now, nope. but those three ETFs, <laughs> you could literally be done and call it a day. And you could probably hold those ETFs for your entire life. And exactly. Be, I think it was great. I think it was, was it John Bogle that talked about if you own the SP 500, you own like pretty well the whole world because all the big corporations are like multinational corporations. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like the S and P 500, I think is, is always a good bet. And I think this year you're seeing that again, what the S and P is up the first quarter. What is it up? Five and a half percent. And I think the Dow was up seven and seven and some change and i was reading that the dow versus the nasdaq it was the largest or widest margin in any quarter of the last 15 years really yeah yep it's like a five percent spread between the two do you have any companies right now you're looking for at like a a cheaper price on your horizon 
not a super big value guy. Um, you know, typically ETFs and more growth plays. Um, although I do like JP Morgan. So I'm in them pretty heavily, but I'm waiting for them to get down a little bit further to, to funnel in a little bit more money. So right now I'm like at a 5% allocation, but if they get down to what I believe it's like $135 per share price, I pump another 5% of my portfolio into it. Yeah, we had a friend that really liked JP Morgan too. Yeah. yeah that was right, Jake. Mark liked JP Morgan, was it? Like JP Morgan and Microsoft. Yeah. Ooh, Microsoft. Yep. What are you guys trying to do in finance? You try guys trying to go to Wall Street or work at a <sighs> bank, RBC? What what are you guys trying to do? Um, I mean, I'm trying to just get a job at a school, you know, get some money going and uh grow my own portfolio and then potentially maybe I think Mitch and I are maybe down the road looking to uh, start our own fund. Okay. Um, I like that. Yes. Maybe like a partnership, kind of like what Buffett did with his close family and friends and then kind of grow it from there. That's exactly what I, I'm trying to do as well. I love it. Really? Yeah. From the real estate perspective, but absolutely. Like, like I think a fund I think is for guys like us is the dream, right? Where you can mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, just, just sounds so great to be able to control your money and do what you want. Um, and you're living off of it. it yeah yeah like we're yeah our hopes aren't to get extremely extremely like billionaire status rich we're hoping to get you know be able to live well beyond our means and help the ones around us out and stuff like that but as long as we're able to allocate capital um yeah. and doing what we love uh and if, uh, if that's within a, a partnership then that's something that i think definitely uh in mine and jake's future are you guys uh, trying to get the CFA? How hard is that? How, like, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I will say, um, one of your fellow Canadians, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Mark Meldrum. He's a CFA um, prep provider. He made my experience so much better. Um, I think he's a Canadian professor, and I used his program for all three levels. Pretty difficult, though, I would say. So I think I spent on average like four or 500 hours per level. Um, and I did it over the course of four years. Um, it's just an, it's information overload. So like, imagine mm. you're in universe, you're at your university, right? And instead of having monthly exams for six of your courses, um, you have six courses and you, you take one exam, one cumulative exam over those six courses at the end of the quarter or at the end of the semester. That's kind of what the exams are. It's like one exam over six classes at the end of a semester. So it takes up a lot of your time eh? over those four years. Would you say it was? Yeah, I, I would. I would say, I would say so for sure. And I think if you're going to do it, are you guys juniors or seniors uh, in college or what are you guys? Yeah. Year? Your second year. Oh, second year. So I think they allow you to take it during your um, your fourth year. You can start taking it. I would definitely consider doing that because a lot of the curriculum from the CFA goes parallel with a finance degree at the university or an accounting degree. Honestly, mm-hmm. a lot of the curriculum really follows suit with what you're learning at the university, I would imagine. Do you think that economics was like the best route for you or would you rather go back and take something else i think economics 
was great for a lot of perspectives. I think economics now, there's so much emphasis on data analytics. So in my degree, I had to get uh, certifications in Python and R. And I think that's really important when, when you're, tr if you're trying to get a job in finance, um, having that data analytics piece is pretty huge. Um, especially when I was working on the MBS desk, I was able to use Python for a lot of what I was doing. And I started seeing the shift of these models are a lot based in Python and even R. So I think economics does a great job at preparing you. Um, and I also think with the markets, it's important to have economic, you know, an economic foundation um, to base your valuations off of. No, but I mean, because you said you're a top-down guy, correct? So top-down guy, absolutely. And so economics would help you extremely a lot with with top-down approach. Yep. The fact that it is all about based on macroeconomics. And I think um, that's how I developed top-down approach was because of my background in economics. Um, but I know for you guys, you're more of a bottom-up. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Almost like just almost just a bottom and then not a top at all. Okay. Like there's, there's no bottom up. Like there's just bottom. And then we do like you, look a little bit. Do you look at sectors though, before you do a, uh, you know, a bottom um, or how, how do you, how do you come across your companies? Are you just staying in your circle of confidence and finding value there? We tend not to um, go into industries that are like dying rapidly or yep. like, um, like smoking or something like that, tobacco industry. Like we won't get okay. into something like that because. Or retail like, or things of that nature. Something, yeah, something that's dying. But um, we we don't necessarily always invest in the industries that have like the highest like like tailwind, like industry-wide. Like we sometimes sure. try to figure out like if there's like a company in like a overlooked industry where it's better than the rest and people yeah. just don't realize it. We're, we're trying sure. to look for that stuff. So I'd say okay. so much. Yeah, right. So we own a real estate uh, investment trust that owns uh, shopping malls. We know shopping malls long term probably won't be able to withstand uh, to what it is maybe right. 10, 15 years ago what it was. Um, but I mean, I think as long as our thesis is correct, which we do believe, and we do have like a margin of safety, uh, if you understand like margin of safety is like 50% off discount from its intrinsic yep. value. Um, and so we gave ourselves with something that in that industry, we gave ourselves like a 75% off margin of safety. Like it, we, we really and wanted to get a significant discount if it is in a dying industry or if it is declining, I guess. They, so they also are on reopening. You think it's going to be pretty favorable in the short run? Well, see, the thing is what they are is doing a uh, turnaround. Uh, they're transforming. Uh, yeah. And so are they redeveloping in. retail into something else? Yeah, and the multifamily uh, properties. Oh, and like, okay. and then like other like type of properties as well that are. I love that. Yeah, because yes. I'm in. I do commercial and commercial real estate investing, and I'm a commercial realtor as well. So I like that. That's really hard to do. So what areas is this REIT in? I'm really curious now. All of U.S. All of you. Okay. And it's some like really like top tier properties in our opinion. And they're it's taking like malls and they're redeveloping. And, and spitting out multifamily. Yeah. Multifamily, as well as like more like mixed um, use. Mixed, mixed use. use. Yeah. Nice. And so they'll have, you know, they'll have multifamily properties, so they'll have apartments, but then they'll have a shopping mall underneath shopping. or some type of store, as well as like a gym or whatever. Interesting. What read is this? If you don't mind me asking, I'm going to put this on my, my freaking watch list now. Heritage Growth Properties, SRG. 
SRG, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's done pretty well. Like Warren Buffett owns 5% of it. He bought 5% at $40. Individually, share. like without Berkshire. Mm-hmm. And then there's a bunch of other um, guys we look up to that own it as well. What's it currently trading at? It was $20 a share. And you think, what do you think that the intrinsic value is? Um, Short term, we think the intrinsic value probably to be about 35, 40. Um, Long term, we've heard upwards of 130. We don't believe it'll be 130, um, but I'd say give or take 60, 65 within the next five years. Um, It depends on, it's all depends on development. It all depends on how much rent they can receive too, like going forward, how quickly they can get people in. So they actually right. like to actually rent it out like tenants, but um, there's been like, people think that like the land alone is worth like $15 a share. Like, like it's some like pretty prime property around the U S. Okay. What, what is their breakdown on geography though? Are they concentrated in specific cities that I might be familiar with? Or is it just across? It, the it's, it's pretty much just across. Um, okay. They're a lot in Florida, okay. uh, yeah. California, yeah. Um, I believe Texas, Jake. They quite a bit in Texas. If like almost every state, yeah, have pretty most majority state of states. states, yeah. Oh yeah, I have it pulled up. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah, and there's a lot of YouTube videos on it too. I found because there's a lot of value investors that like to clone, and so we got a lot of information from them. Then reading the annual reports, uh, and then the, like the investors uh, meetings and stuff like that. They also just got a new CEO, uh, Andrea Olshlin. Um, she came from, I forget exactly where she came from. It was a private New York enterprise, but yeah. Because I'm reading right now, you know, it has 183 properties totaling 28 and a half million square feet. Yeah. And about, oh shoot, call it 55, 60% is rented out and there's still some vacant. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 It's, it was huge. Like, when it was down at $5 a share, it was amazing. We got to pick it up around 10. Oh, you guys picked. Oh my God. Nice. Yeah. We started looking at it around eight, reading up on it. And then it rose in price a little bit. Uh, we had like a little we bit. Then it just kind of slid in. Uh, uh, like it's very volatile. So like um, CEO, <laughs> like it was a very like normal thing. CEO left based on the fact that he was getting like four times the amount over at another place and it had like a market cap of like 10 times what S or Seritage was so mm. that's why he left and then like that it went down by like 20% that day well okay. like it goes up and down like <laughs> like 20% sometimes in a day like it's like really volatile yeah it's always good to watch and then pick up on some when there's discounts I might have to I might have to just add a share or two read it you know and for uh for this podcast sake look at it huh. yeah. <laughs> i like that that makes a lot of sense though because i'm in that space so that makes yeah, a whole lot of sense it very easily, yeah. hmm. and what would happen what was happening too is um it was like a like um what happened is sears went into bankruptcy or something right. and they had to like transfer the properties and somehow it got like what was it what do they call it like spun out kind of like the properties into a new oh yeah Yes. And um, what happened though is like part of the deals, they'd have to keep leasing to um, Sears, Sears, uh, the Sears company, like at the properties, and they were charging okay. like $4 a square foot. 
Oh, did they do like a sale lease back? Is that what they did? Yeah, yeah sale lease yeah. back. Because that's what, what I do. Okay, that's so. Oh my god, I need to look at this. And then, and then all what the, happened? All the rentals, like yeah, like all the leases were due like in the last couple of years, so they're available to either increase rents, um, or they will get rid of out, or just get rid of them fully. And so then they think like. What is it like seventeen dollars square foot that they're getting on average? They're starting to get seventeen to twenty dollars square foot now, so they're like increasing yeah. rents. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. Oh my god! Yeah, sale leasebacks are a big reap play. So hmm. we weren't already so concentrated in them. I'd probably be buying right now. Yeah. Uh, what? Uh, how concentrated 20%. are you in them? Twenty percent of my portfolio. Twenty percent? Yeah. Yeah. I like it. That's. Uh, that's a pretty big see a lot of people would say that's not you're not that concentrated but for somebody who understands a portfolio 20 percent is pretty significant but i yeah, like that. that's yeah, yeah. It is, that's good and so i think i mean 20 percent is not that concentrated as we are young investors uh and it was like our first like big one kind of like yeah. first big investment that we made and so i think going back like if it does go down if it does go down to nine dollars again I'll, I'll keep buying um yeah. <laughs> but it rose pretty fast as soon as i was buying because uh, I just buy as I read up more. Um, but yeah, like right now at $18 a share, I think it's still a great price. Um, but I think I kind of, I, I, honestly, it's a great price what it is now. Yeah, like it's still pretty ridiculous. Like for that many properties. Like, yeah, I'm liking that. Oh my God. Yeah, right now there's still a margin of safety, I believe. Um, just not as crazy as what it was when we bought it. Right. But yeah, I think like they're that. looking better though. Yeah, because yeah, so, the people. So, do you want to talk about the debt situation too? Mm-hmm. You go on it. So, so um, Warren Buffett personally, in his own portfolio, had bought like a significant amount of the actual company yeah. back in like was like 2017 and 2018 when they were at like forty dollars a share. Yeah, it was 2015. That's when he started opening a position. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So back then, right? And right now. They also then Berkshire also owns 1.6 billion of the debt of Seritages. Ah, so like, do you really think that? And during the pandemic, they said like, you don't have to give us payments now, but we're going to expect a higher interest payment later. So they helped yeah. them through the pandemic. So Buffett and Munger both don't like to drag um, them through like um, they don't like or, making them more fault on their debt and stuff. And right. that'll definitely help them historically. Especially since Buffett's on both sides of it, right? I mean, obviously, he can't. Right. Really do yeah. It. Yeah. He's on both sides. Absolutely. So, so it's really interesting. It's <laughs> that's how we got on our radar is through uh, the. Uh, do you ever use the website called Dataroma? And so it's no. all based on like the 13 Fs of these like top investors. So like you go to no. like, Bill Actonbot. What? So it's called Dataroma? Dataroma. Yeah, you can yeah. see all the big investors like. Uh, um, David Tepper, everyone. I'm le- I'm learning some out of this, man. This is great. I uh, I bookmarked that. That's fantastic. I'd never heard of it. I use yeah, Seeking only- Alpha for a lot of you- what I do. Okay, yeah, yeah. We've read up on Seeking Alpha quite a bit. Do you ever use Ticker Terminal? No, I don't. T I K R. It's another good one. I find it's because you can see their international holdings as well. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's just how kind of we get a little bit of our ideas from. We just kind of okay. see like what the big money's buying, and then right. if it's something that we're kind of interested in, um, you know, like I, I've dabbled a little bit in Bella, 
Um, but now that Munger just got into uh, probably yesterday, like I'll start reading up a little bit more and just kind of understand his thesis more than anything. Right. Like, doesn't mean I'm going to buy it, but just kind of understand why I think. I mean, he's very bullish on China. And I think it's just big reason why, Mitch, he, he bought it is because a good buddy of his, Li Lu, is from China. So he has a little more insight than most yep. people. So I think it's important to get exposure to China too. I think. You know, you mentioned we have so much exposure just naturally in a portfolio to the U.S. that I think mm. it's important to still keep your eyes on a little bit internationally. So I liked when you said, Baba, for the Chinese exposure. I have um, a Chinese gaming uh, nerd. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, uh, I haven't. That's like a uh, esports ETF, actually. Oh, really? okay. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's a big China play, I think. So that was kind of my thinking um from chinese perspective because you know china china definitely definitely has shown in the past uh you know two major market corrections that they typically recover faster than the u.s although it's not happening um for 2020 for covid but you know back in 03 and then back in 08 uh they rebounded quicker yeah i think um them in india have uh, a lot of potential. I think India does as well. I mean, I don't have any holdings over in India, but I think India also has some potential. Yeah. What What is your guys' biggest uh, sector that you're bullish on? <sighs> Honestly, I'd say right now financials. If I had to, if I had to pick a sector, I love um, it. I don't hear that a, enough from people. Our favorite <laughs> financial like like company is EQ Bank in Canada. It's an online bank account. Okay. And it's an online, like it's online bank, uh, online lender, like everything. Yep. And uh, we, we see some interesting prospects. Uh, it's well, right now they're, they have the highest um, savings account rate in Canada. Yeah. And the, the, the reason why they're able to do it is because they don't have any brick and mortar store or um, uh, brick and mortar. Yeah. Low overhead. Right. Exactly. Right. So they're able to, you know, have a higher um, savings rate, like our savings um, interest rate available to their customers. And then what is that? Do you know profits. the rate? Like I'm just um, it is 1.5% for non-registered accounts and then registered, well, registered accounts are 2.3. Holy crap. That's way higher. I mean, the yeah. U S yeah. I don't even think you can get more than 50, 60 basis points when I was looking yeah. last. And yeah. They have, that's, like, that's our competition here. It might be, 25 basis points like it's nothing really yeah and they so have like, no debt too and they have like return on invested capital of like 15 percent per year for the last like 10 and they're selling at like a pe of is it like around 10 nine. right now nine PE of nine yeah nice. slightly a premium of book and we we picked it up i picked it up at first i picked up around 70 and it now it's around 120 ish 125 nice yeah yeah i loaded the truck up around 96 okay yeah, so we we really like it. I mean, we're also uh, customers of them, and like we're really happy. And so, any of my friends that say like I kind of want to get my finances right, um, that's right. what I think is say like they open up an EQ bank account. Okay. And the craziest thing about it is there's no like like once you put it in, you can take it out the next day, and there's no fees. Really? You just take, yeah, like it's no like there's no lock in period or anything. <laughs> So yeah, so it wouldn't be like a CD, right? Where you're no. what? 
It's just a, it's just like you transfer yourself. Can I use this as a U.S. citizen? I um, don't know. I don't know. I have no clue, to be honest. <laughs> Damn. But you, you might be able to. You can and you know, the Canadian dollar is gained against the U.S. there. Lately, yeah, it is. So. Yep. <laughs> do, you, do you have any Canadian companies in your portfolio? I don't think so. I actually, no. I, well, some of my ETFs probably do because I'm in a global ETF. But oh, as yeah, far yeah. as individual holdings, no, I do not. Do you, do you recommend anything for me to look in um, as far um, as Canadian stocks are concerned? There is one. Okay. Alimentation Couch Tired. It's a French, yeah. uh, French convenience store, but it's all over the world now. They have some Circle in China. K. Circle K. Um, they have some in the United States. They have, oh, yeah, they some have Circle Canada. K in the US. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the big play on them right now is they've been growing at a great clip for the last however many years, 15, 20 years. And COVID hit and people stopped using the gas. Right. As much because people weren't traveling. Um, most of their revenue comes from gas, but most of the profit actually comes from the in-store sales. Yeah. Exactly, right? And people seeing that revenue was down for the last year or whatever, but their actual profit was increasing. So people like, like oh. right now selling at like a 14 PE and this thing's right. grown at 15, 20% a year for the last however many years. And they're also starting to get into EV chargers and they started over in Norway now. And they're coming oh. back to North America with EV chargers. And another reason why they went on sale, like compared to what they were, is they tried to bid for a Carrefour. It's a, um, I think it's in France. It's the um, kind of like the grocery store of France, like the big, like food. Would you say it would be, Amitch, would you say it would be like the, like, what would that be in the United States? Carrefour. Whatever your biggest, other than Costco. Um, like something like okay. a huge grocery store chains where all the food comes basically most of the food in france but right. then the france government said like no we don't want like someone not from france to own all our food and all that stuff so they didn't allow it or whatever mm-hmm. and then everyone went on, they went on sale for a bit but i think honestly like it deserves more than like a 14 pe at the moment like right. and then it's also going to grow so yeah, so like we have different things so we have like extreme value which is like more like srg approach like heritage then right. we have like then we have like growth at a reasonable price, which is more like EQ bank and then allocation yep. chart. Um, okay. Right. So if they're growing at like 20% clip over a good amount where we see that there's future growth potential uh, within the next 10, 15 years, they'll be able to keep it up. Um, and they're selling at like 10 PE, 15 PE. Um, yeah, we'll pick it up. Huh. I like that. Yeah. Well, shoot, I, I appreciate your time, guys. I really had a good one on this one. I think well, you guys got a lot of good content. Thank you very much for coming on there today, Josh. Yeah. Thank um, you. If any of you guys would like to listen to Josh, uh, you can just go and look at Wall Street Junkie uh, yep. podcast. It's on any podcast website. Eh? It's like on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, it's on Apple, Spotify. Spotify, you name it. It's on there. Awesome. Is there anything else that you'd like to shout out? No, I, I appreciate you guys, you know, once again, and you know, for you guys listening, just get started. If you're not in it yet, just get started, whether it's 10, $20, even if you're a broke college student, I think it's important to just build the habits now. And I think you can speak to this too. I mean, once you start seeing your money work for you, it's addicting and it's addicting yeah, yeah. in a good way. 100%. And then once you come across money, right, once you finish college and you start rolling in the big bucks, you know, or, or whatever you do, 
mm-hmm. you start ha- start to have more access to capital and you've already had those mm-hmm. good habits built. And so now it's off to the races for you and you could really snowball your wealth really quick no, exactly. build those habits now. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, appreciate Josh. it, man. Appreciate it, Jake. You guys have a good one. You do as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money Under the Mattress. If you have any questions about this episode, you can email us at moneyunderthemattress.podcast at gmail.com. Everything discussed in this podcast is our opinion and should not be used as investment advice. This podcast is for your entertainment and education purposes only, and we hope that you enjoyed it.